Let's pray. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Father, we come uh, again today before you and before your word uh, and ask that you would show us wonderful things uh, in your word. Uh, Father, we... Uh, look forward to the time here in the remainder of Ezekiel, and we pray, Father, that you would uh, grant us understanding, that you would uh, guard us from error, that you would give us a joy and a heart of worship as we see the unfolding uh, through these last chapters of this vision that you have given to Ezekiel. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome back to what will, uh, at least by our plan, be our final week uh, officially together in Ezekiel. I hope that uh, what has happened here uh, over these past few weeks will spur you on that this won't be your last week in Ezekiel, uh, that you will uh, uh, continue to, to search out. Uh, God's Word. Uh, I know that I will. I'm not done with Ezekiel after these, these few weeks. But uh, we have the last nine chapters uh, before us today. Uh, so Ezekiel 40 through 48. If you haven't turned there already, you can go ahead and do that. And as we do, um, I'm probably going to take an inordinate amount of time just to remind us of where we are in the context uh, because I think that helps us understand what is it uh, that, that we have before us. So uh, remember from the last time we studied Ezekiel two weeks ago, uh, we were in chapters 38 and 39. And uh, it was the defeat of the great horde from the north. You remember Gog and, and Magog. Uh, and we saw that Ezekiel had a, a growing number of uh, words of futuristic and climactic and finality sort of things coming in the text that we hadn't seen uh, thus far. And we saw striking similarities between these two chapters in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation, uh, the end of Revelation 19, the beginning of Revelation 20. Uh, striking similarities, a couple of which were birds being called to feast on a fallen enemy. We saw that in Ezekiel 39, verses 17 to 20. We see essentially the same thing in Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21, that the kings of the earth with their armies will fall and will become a feast for the birds. Another striking similarity we saw was 
It was really the defeat of this great horde or this great army from the north and their complete destruction at the hand of the Lord. Uh, Ezekiel 38, verses 21 and 22 speaks of Gog and many people, a great host, a mighty army coming. Uh, And in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10 speaks specifically of Gog and Magog being deceived by the devil and, and being destroyed, defeated and destroyed. So one of the takeaways here, just before we launch into the rest of these chapters, is that we need to be aware of the tone of finality that's come into this book, um, really pointing to the summation of all things. Uh, Yahweh, if we, if we take a jet tour over all of Ezekiel, has promised to destroy a Jerusalem and the temple, removing the idol worship that was going on there. He has purified his people both within the country of uh, the nation of Israel and uh, in, as they've been scattered uh, to the nations. He's promised to bring them back to the land. He is making his people one kingdom once more. He's promised to do that. At this point in time, there was after, after the fall of Jerusalem, there was no kingdom, right? Under David and Solomon, there was one, then there were two, then uh, Israel was, was destroyed by the Assyrians, back to one, and after the fall of Jerusalem, now zero, and, and God promises to bring his people back and to make them one again. He's declared judgment on the nations all around Israel, and now he's declaring this final judgment and a final forever victory for his people and giving, I think today, his people a picture of what his enduring kingdom will look like forever. Um, so it's against that backdrop, that, that context, that we come to Ezekiel chapter 40. Uh, these are not easy chapters, and uh, I am not your expert here. I am just your teacher today, and I will share with you what I think uh, the, the scriptures are saying, uh, but I am still working my way through many of these things as well, and I trust that you are. If you have it all sewn up, I encourage you <laughs> to step back and trust that the, the Lord may have more for you uh, in this. So, anyway, if you haven't found your way to Ezekiel 40 by now, shame on you, but um, after this 10 minutes, but let's, let's go. Ezekiel uh, 40, uh, verses 1 and 2. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. Okay, so... Even as this introduction, and Ezekiel is setting the stage for us, uh, we are learning um, more about this already. This has been now 25 years into Ezekiel's exile, um, sorry, 20 years uh, since the the book started in chapter 1, and 14 years since Jerusalem has fallen. And interestingly, it's the 10th day of the first month. So... 
who knows, besides John Lees, because John knows all these things, <laughs> what's important about the 10th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar? Say again? Passover, Passover that's right. This is the first day. Thank you. This is the, the day when they were to get their lamb, bring it into their house from, Ezekiel, from uh, uh, Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> I'm going to read verse 3. Tell all the congregation, this is Exodus 12, verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, this is the first month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. And then verse 6, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So even as, even the very setting chronologically uh, for us, God is seeking to communicate uh, inf information to us about what, what are we about to see here? Uh, what, what is it was about to come to us to, to have this? That this is, this is the day of, of gathering the lamb before the Passover. And um, Ezekiel is brought to a, a mountaintop seat. He's got, he's got a view of the city, uh, a city like no city he's ever seen. He doesn't name it as Jerusalem. He says it, it's clear because we're, we'll be quickly into the temple. But, but uh, he says, Set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. So there's a city, sorry, south that way, is, is down there. Let's go on, verses 3 and 4. When he brought me there, behold... There was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel." So we have uh, a tour guide. Ezekiel is going to have a tour guide through, through everything that we will have through the rest of this. Uh, an angel, it appears, he's glowing, um, and he's got a big stick. Uh, we'll learn in verse 5 that it's ten and a half feet long. Uh, that's a big read. That's a, and and uh, he's going to go around <clears throat> and measure things and explain uh, things. But I want you to see the charge uh, in verse 4, uh, particularly, we'll see something or hear something like this at least three more times through these chapters, which Ezekiel has not been given these sorts of specific charges uh, earlier in the, in the book, like we see here. Son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon all that I show you. For you, now we have a purpose statement, you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Um, and then, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Uh, so, <clears throat> it would be much easier to just do away with these chapters <laughs> because they're, they're detailed, they're meticulous, they're, they're complex, they can be confusing. But Ezekiel is told to pay close attention to all that's being shown to him. 
and then to be ready to declare all of it to the house of Israel. So it, I think that it demands our attention uh, as well. So why? We, we haven't even seen this yet, but why? Why is this so important? Um, I'm going to propose that it's because Israel needed hope. They needed a certain hope. They needed to know that what God had been promising, what he had been unveiling little by little, little glimpses of restoration, promises of restoration, that it would be real. Uh, they had, though, though, though Israel has the promises and the covenant from God, they had rebelled. Uh, they had felt the chastisement of the Lord for centuries. Uh, they had internal rebellion from wicked kings and, and rebellious people. They had external persecution from the nations around them. And here they are, uh, 25 years into exile, and if they had heard of Jeremiah, they knew they had a long way to go yet. And they were thousands of miles from home, sitting by the Kabar Canal. Uh, they were no longer a people. They no longer had a land. They no longer had a place to worship because the city and the temple were gone. And they were speaking in the ways of Psalm 137. Let me read you a portion of that. Psalm 137. <clears throat> Verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And verses 4 through 6. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now we can argue that there may be a little bit of Jerusalem idolatry there, but you get the point. These people love their land because it's where they are called to go to worship as well. They love this city. And now, for decades, they're, they're with, without it. So they have heard from Ezekiel, if they've been paying attention over these 20 years, um, increasing frequency of the promise of restoration. But really, practically, nothing has changed. Right? They're, they're just 20 years older, 20 years closer to the end of exile, but, but, but their situation remains the same. And so they can't envision, what, what will this be? What, what will the restoration, what, where are we going, uh, Father? Where are we going, God? <clears throat> and so Yahweh and his heavenly tour guide are going to provide Israel, and by extension all who trust in the Lord, uh, a picture of this kingdom to come. Uh, we will see uh, the new temple in chapter, the rest of chapter 40 through 43. We'll see uh, new ordinances, new worship in chapters 43 through to the end of 46, and then the new land. Uh, and allotment and the, the people in 47 and 48. Um, and these will put before Israel's eyes through Ezekiel a manifestation of this certain hope that, that Israel needs right now. And maybe you need it today as well. So, we're going to shuffle through this probably more quickly than you would like um, 
but I want to get to the end and see how we can understand these things. So 40, chapter, chapter 40 through 42, our angelic tour guide, he goes about measuring walls and doorways and, and jams and gateways and, and rooms. Um, he is methodical. He's meticulous. And everything that he measures is just amazingly precise in terms of its how it's everything is square and shaped as you would you would imagine it to be the outer court and its three gates uh, the middle of chapter 40 the inner court and its three gates uh, the end of chapter 40 is the the priests chambers uh, areas for preparing sacrifices and the temple vestibule <clears throat> chapter 41 uh, turns its attention to the temple proper. Um, the most holy place has the exact same dimensions of the most holy place or the holy of holies from Solomon's uh, temple. He describes a building to the, at the west end of this uh, temple structure. Uh, describes the holy place, the altar, the altar of incense, and the temple doors. Uh, into chapter 42... Then we have the description in the first half of the chapter of chambers that are surrounding the outer court. And part of the reason I'm not going to go into all of these details is that if you have a study Bible or the internet, you can get all sorts of wonderful charts and pictures. And uh, one commentator that I was, have been reading actually has a wonderful little like uh, family circus uh, thing of showing where Ezekiel was taken through the temple complex. Um, yeah, so his pathway through all of this. <clears throat> and then at the end of uh, chapter 42, we're told that this whole complex uh, is, a, is a square that's about 900 feet on a side. So to give you just a, a picture of what, what does that mean, uh, imagine you, you were down here at the corner by the chapel doors, and you drove north to the park that's up there, two blocks. And then you went down the hill to Hewlin, and you came back to the four-way stop, and you came back up here to the corner right where the chapel is. That sort of gives you a rough estimate of the size of this temple area and all of these grounds. Four, four city blocks stacked together gives you this, this picture. That's what it is. So I encourage you after church, just go do that. Make that drive. <laughs> It, it looked like a pep rally before a football game. We can all honk. And, anyway. All right. Back at this. Chapter 43. We've, we need to see this. You need to see this. This is wonderful. Um, verses 1 through 5. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the Lord Sorry, the, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple, by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That should strike some common chords with you 
as you, as you hear that read, um, what do you think of? The glory of the Lord filling the temple? Isaiah chapter 6, right? Yeah, and, and Ezekiel himself says, this was just like the vision that I had back in chapter 1 and back in chapter 8. Um, no surprise, same Lord, same vision, uh, right? We, we, we shouldn't be surprised by that. But the, what was happening in chapters 8 through 11 when uh, Ezekiel saw the vision of the glory of the Lord? Anybody remember? Jessica has all the answers over here. Yes, the glory of the Lord was leaving the temple, right, bit by bit, and sort of stepwise takes us out and goes out to the east, away from the temple, out, to the, out of the city to the east, and to a mountaintop uh, away. The glory of the Lord left. And I, I think we, because we're not, I mean, we, we do come to worship here on Sundays, right, but, but we know that all of life is worship. And we don't have to go to a specific place for a feast or, or to, to sacrifice or to worship. But, so it's hard for us to understand how magnificent this is to the heart of the Israelite to, to see the glory of the Lord returning to the temple, to this place of worship. And uh, Ezekiel does the same thing that he did in chapter 1, chapter 8, fell on his face. It's what you do when you're before um, the God of glory. Um, <clears throat> so, we believe that Ezekiel saw those cherubim, saw those wheels within wheels, saw that platform, that throne, uh, and has the same response. And this reversal of what we had seen in, in Ezekiel before is, is magnificent. Verses 6 through 9. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts by, beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. So this is Yahweh himself speaking out of the temple uh, to Ezekiel and saying, just as we, we introduced this, words of forever. I am home. This is, this is where I will be. I will be among my people. I will be in the midst of my people forever. Uh, even, yeah, we can spend a little time on this. The structure even of the tabernacle, the very first uh, place of worship that was constructed, just a tent, right? The Holy of Holies was right in the center of that which was within the center of a courtyard, which was within the center of the encampment of God's people, three tribes on a side. As they settled somewhere, you know, and the, and the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire stopped, that was the sign, 
we're camping here, right? You set up tent, and God is in the midst. He's in the middle. Not the midst, but he's in the middle. And here, the word, I am in their midst, is even stronger than that. It's, it's something more than just geography. It is an involvement that, that God is now proclaiming. This is where I will be in the midst of my people forever. Okay. Verses 10 through 12. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple, the whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. So we have a, this is a second reminder to Ezekiel. This is important. The details are important, and you are to be declaring this to the people. And the purpose, go back to verse 10 with me. Fascinating. Describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed. God's purpose in all of this description is to bring about repentance in the people of Israel. When they see what God has promised to do, what he's planning to do, in spite of them, the purpose is to bring about repentance, that they would put away all the abominations, all of their wickedness, and be ashamed of it and turn to him. Okay, before we leave this temple part, just very quickly, some notable things that I'm not going to expand on. You can chase those however you wish. Uh, there's no mention anywhere in all of this of any metal, right? The Solomon's temple, like hammered gold, everything, and brass and bronze and this and silver and that, this is hewn stone and wood. I don't have a great explanation for that. It's just a notable thing. There aren't even mentions here of any precious stones uh, or gems being involved with any of the decorations here. There's no mention of an Ark of the Covenant or a mercy seat uh, at the center of this temple either. Uh, nor are there instructions given for the people to build it or do we have any description of who built it? Uh, it's... They're just supposed to know. They're supposed to know the plan in great detail. But, but no one has given them yet anything to do with that other than to be repentant uh, over their sins. All right. On to the new ordinances, which really pick up in, in chapter 43, verse 13. And for the rest of chapter 43, <clears throat> uh, the vision will the, and the tour guide are going to describe the altar a series of offerings that are to be made upon it uh, to consecrate the altar. Uh, then it's regular use for burnt offerings and peace offerings. And throughout these next three chapters, uh, there's, a, there's 
an exhaustive list of offerings that are listed. Burnt offering, peace offering, grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering, free will offering, meal offerings, drink offerings. Uh, the whole gamut is, is here of, from uh, Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Uh, it includes in chapter 44 injunctions against the profane entering the temple and gives rules for the Levites and the priests. And take a look with me at verse, uh, chapter 44, verse 5. I'll go to verse 4. Then he, this is the, the tour guide, brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary." So again, this is, a, this is now our third reminder that details matter. And I feel a little bit hypocritical going through nine chapters of Ezekiel in 45 minutes as I'm telling you that details matter. But, the, <laughs> but this, is, I mean, this is why it should spur you on to continue to look more closely at this, and we all would individually. Um, but, but Ezekiel is once again reminded Pay close attention to what you're seeing. Write it down and tell the people. <clears throat> In chapter 45, uh, describe, describes for us the temple and the area around it as being established as really the center of Israel, uh, the center of the world, in fact. And we have uh, more calls to holiness and to justice. Finally, then, in uh, chapter 45, verse 17... We have a discussion, more specifically, of feasts. Um, in verse 17, there's a general reference to all the feasts, or all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel, and it speaks of a prince. We'll come back to the prince in just a couple of minutes, uh, but I, I do want to point out that this prince, it's his duty to furnish all of the offerings uh, within this temple. Right, so that's a significant deviation from the way things worked in Solomon's temple. So verse 17, a general reference to all or at least many of the, the feasts. Uh, verses 18 to 20 is a feast that we do not know anything of from uh, earlier in, in Leviticus. <clears throat> Starts on the first month, the first day of the year, um, and um, there's atonement either made or remembered, but it's not a day of atonement uh, during this, this feast. Passover is mentioned in verses 21 to 24, and unleavened bread as well. And verse 25 uh, speaks of the seventh month, the Feast of Booths, uh, is, is there as well. What's, what's not here, again, these are notable, just not here are, are mentions of the, the Feast of first fruits. Uh, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, or as, I, and as I'd said, the, the Day of Atonement uh, itself. Chapter 46 gives us additional instructions for celebrating these feasts, bringing offerings, and uh, then uh, 
I think the final thing that Ezekiel gets is a tour of the kitchens. There are kitchens at the corner of this temple ground where they bake things, they boil things, they prepare sacrifices. Um, One of the notable things within here that uh, we have seen, or we would see, we'd read every word of it here, Look, look back with me in chapter 44, verse 15. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. So the, other, the rest of the Levites, the rest of the priestly families uh, were allowed to be in the temple area um, dealing with preparations of, of offerings. But only the sons of Zadok, because of their faithfulness, could actually bring these to the altar uh, to offer them. Second, and I mentioned this earlier, this prince shows up. Um, He's not named. Uh, He provides all of the offerings for the people in this temple vision. Uh, In chapter 45, verse 22, as he is offering... Um, his offerings himself, he says, on, this, on that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. Um, so he's at least making a, a sin offering. Chapter 46, verse 2, says, The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from outside, shall take his stand by the post of the gate, the priest's, shall offer his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. So he worships. He accompanies the people as they bring their offerings. That's a little later in chapter 46, verse 10. And uh, it appears that he has children as well. Uh, Chapter 46, verse 16. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his, as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. So we have this, this prince who we really want to think is the Messiah. Who's, he's the, the perfect sinless leader and focus of the worship, but it's not exactly that. It's not exactly that. We just don't have a uh, a name or a title for him, but we uh, just want to make you aware of that. Again, this is another topic that you can dig into. So before we go on to the, the last two chapters and then um, talk about how to understand all of these, I just want you to see that just as the temple itself restores and refreshes the idea that God is, is present amongst his people, uh, the, the description of these practices, the offerings, the sacrifices, the rituals, is giving a vision of how the people would rightly and faithfully respond to God in that setting. Okay, on to chapters 47 and 48. Uh, Ezekiel's brought back to the temple door, and lo and behold, uh, there's water issuing from the temple that grows into this great impassable river. Um, 
So that's from verse 1. Water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. Look down at uh, verse 6 with me. And he said to me, this is his, this, his tour guide, Son of man, have you seen this? Right? So again, we have a, now a fourth reminder. Ezekiel, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. What they had done is he saw this trickle of water and then the tour guide takes him a thousand cubits east and it's ankle deep and then another thousand cubits deep and it's knee deep and another thousand cubits east and it's an impassable river. And... Um, We'll see more of what's going on. Look, at me, look with me at uh, verses 7 through 9. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. So that's likely the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And then down to verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Ah, that should get your attention. Ah, leaves for healing. We're, we're, we're aware of that elsewhere, right? Um, we'll come back to that. The rest of chapter 47 and in through most of 48 describes how the land is divvied up and it's uh, divided amongst the the several tribes. Uh, Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, have two shares and the Levites, uh, as before, have God as their possession, as their inheritance, and then the other tribes have, have the remainder. An interesting note, down in, chap- in uh, verses 21 through 23 of chapter 47, I want you to see. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourself and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. So this is about Israel, but now we have sojourners. You know, if you're living in Naphtali and you're a follower of the Lord, you're now a Naphtali's or whatever that would be. You know, you, you're grafted in. Okay. At the end of the uh, division and the allotment of the land, I want you to see how this book ends. So look at the very last verse of Ezekiel with me. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there, Yahweh Shammah, 
The Lord is there. Uh, and what a glorious picture, the summation of everything that we have been reading over these weeks. So now, uh, as you might expect, uh, much ink, many trees, several million electrons have given their lives to the conversation about these chapters and how to understand them. Uh, we're not going to solve all of those things today, but let me just give us a couple of questions and a reminder as we think about it. Question one, should we think of this vision uh, as being a literal description of real things that will occur just as described or not, something else? That's one, one question. Second question, and it's re really regardless of how you answer the first question, what time period is being talked about? Is this something that Ezekiel and the exiles should have expected during their lifetime? Is this talking about the, the first advent of, of Jesus who comes to make all things new? Uh, is, is this his second coming? Is it the millennium? Is it the eternal state after the great white throne? That's question two. And then the reminder. In these nine chapters, there's been an absence of something that we've seen 75 times during the first 39 chapters of Ezekiel, and that is God stating his purpose. So what has God's purpose been that he's stated dozens and dozens and dozens of times so far in Ezekiel? That they may know that I am the Lord, right? Over and over and over again. Um, and, and actually, that's not stated a single time here because I think God is showing them through this vision, right? This remains his purpose, and he is manifesting this in this vision. So just that reminder that that hasn't changed. Um, and so we, we want to try to understand as best we can Ezekiel's authorial intent. It would just be great to just interview Ezekiel. <laughs> Dude, what is this? Um, let me go back to the first question. Uh, could these be literal items? Of course. Sure. Uh, Ezekiel's first temple vision uh, seems to map out with what Solomon's temple looked like, except um, there was this dig through a wall and find a doorway. We're not sure that you could have dug through a temple wall. but So at least on those grounds, it, it certainly could be that this temple vision is, is a literal, physical temple uh, that, that, that could happen in the future. Uh, could the vision be describing literal offerings and feasts? Sure. Uh, there's, there's a ton of detail uh, given here uh, for it to just be simply describing a theme or a type. Uh, but it seems a little stickier, doesn't it, when we start talking about sacrifices after the Messiah. Um, now, now, there's plenty of people who are at ease with understanding this as memorial, like, like in the way that we do the Lord's Supper. Right? We, we, we remember the Lord's sacrifice as we share in the Lord's Supper. There are those who, who would teach that this is, this is ex exactly what the sacrifices and offerings now are shaped to do. To not, to not be a picture of future atonement, but of past atonement, a, a, a memorial. Um, and uh, we were reminded that there's no day of atonement uh, in this. Now... Could the geography be changed so radically so that water that starts at the, at the temple uh, flows all the way to the Dead Sea? Sure. Could be. 
Uh, we're, we're told of a great earthquake in chapter 38 before uh, Gog and Magog are destroyed that, that levels uh, hills and mountains. Um, and, and so these, these things are possible. Um, and I'll leave it at that for now. Question two, when is this, when is this describing? Uh, and, and we'll just say that every possibility that I talked about, there's, there's someone in every one of those camps, okay? Uh, whether, whether, plus the camp of uh, this has nothing to do with time or history at all. It's that, that God's just showing us truth, and uh, that's, that's, that's eternal, okay? All right, so here's, here's my take. And uh, again, I'm not your Ezekiel expert. I've just spent some time here. And, uh, and I appreciate uh, how complex these things are. Um, first, I think that, that God's main point and his purpose remain that, that all would know that he is God. Now, the target of that purpose throughout the book of Ezekiel has been uh, from large to small. It's been the, the whole house of Israel. It's been just some elders that have come to see Ezekiel. It's been false prophets. It's been particular small groups, foreign nations. And I think God is doing the exact same thing today in, in what we're reading today for everyone, everywhere, for all time. That that's his, that's his purpose. So how is he going to make that clear uh, to people? Um, I believe that what's being talked about here is really the same thing as the new Jerusalem that comes down in Revelation 21. Um, and, and so I, I see, now there's, there's all sorts of differences, but there's all sorts of similarities. If you haven't gotten to the backside of your handout, um, you will see lots of things in common here. But why, why do a temple and, and sacrifices if that won't be happening forever? I think that this is, God communicating to 6th century B.C. Israelites what they understood faithful worship to be. A, a, a place of worship that didn't have a temple would be meaningless to, to the exiles at the Kabar Canal. It would only remind them of the destruction of the temple. A temple that, that existed but was empty and nothing was happening would seem like a desecrated temple or a temple that was dead. Uh, so I, I hold these to be, maybe you could call it an idealized uh, version, a, what did I call it in the outline, a preview of perfection, because it's certainly not perfect, but it's a preview of perfection, um, of, of, of what, um, at least to communicate it to 6th century B.C. Israelites, what the, the new city uh, would look like the new Jerusalem because let's not forget there, wasn't, there is no temple in Revelation 21-22 right? because the Lord himself is the temple right? so how can you communicate that to, to Ezekiel and all of his friends at the canal that's, that's my best take uh, on this um, that this is that picture is, is God's chosen way to communicate this. Now, have we abandoned uh, the, the literal, grammatical, histor <laughs> historical, hermeneutic? One, one doesn't think I have. I don't think that I have, but, you know, if, if 
I'll, I'll stop there. But, but you know, the, God communicates in ways that are meaningful. In, in Ezekiel 36, uh, he does not literally remove a small boulder from my pericardium on the day that I believe and then give me an organ made of flesh and blood, right? But it's a picture, right? Take, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for me. Oh, I, can, I understand that, right? And, and for, the, for the 6th century B.C. Israelite to see a temple whose, whose dimensions are glorious and perfect and grand and, and all of the feasts and offerings going forth um, in a way that gives all honor and glory to God, you know, I, I can get that. I can see that, that God is using language um, that, is, that is helpful for his immediate audience. Okay, so you see the table there. You, you know everyone knows English, so I don't need to read that for you, but do see um, it's striking. I was talking with a, a man uh, just before class who's reading Ezekiel and Revelation at the same time, and he told me how thankful he was that he was doing it. And, and uh, I think that particularly these two sections when you get near the end of Ezekiel, I think you ought to be in near the end of Revelation and, and seeing all the similarities, though there are differences, no doubt. Um, okay. So regardless of, of where you are, uh, where you land on this, uh, I think that the, the, the main point we don't want to lose sight of is that Ezekiel is describing a realization of this restoration that's been promised over and over throughout this book. And now there is sort of a manifestation for our eyes to behold and our heart to enjoy. Um, and, and it ends again with the Lord is there. You know, the last time that we see the word Jerusalem uh, in uh, Ezekiel is way back like in chapter 36. Uh, it's a, and so even the name has not even been used. The city's already gone. It's been destroyed. And, and finally, God gives it a name at the, at the end. The Lord is there. He's in the midst of his people. And I, I, I just can't imagine a more beautiful way to end this book by the prophet Ezekiel uh, and to, to end this study. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your spirit. Thank you for this vision that you gave to Ezekiel, these 10,000 details in this glorious picture of the temple and your people faithfully worshiping and the people restored to the land and your kindness to even include sojourners who seek you out, no matter their uh, language or tongue or nation. Father, we are grateful uh, for this, even if we don't understand it fully. Uh, what we do know is that you are among your people and that uh, you have tabernacled with them uh, in, in literal ways and in your Son, and you will uh, one day forever be in the midst of your people uh, in the new city. Uh, Father, we uh, pray in Jesus' name. Amen.